Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Raz Godelnik. He's the Assistant Professor of Strategic Design and Management at Parsons School of Design, where he currently serves as the Associate Director of the BBA Program in Strategic Design and Management. His research explores connections between innovation, sustainability, business and design strategies, and a focus on new sustainable business models. Currently, he's involved in projects focused on sustainable consumption, employee engagement around climate change, and redefining sustainability in business in the age of the climate crisis. He's also the co-founder of two green startups, Hemper Jeans and Echo Libris, and has been writing for over a decade about corporate social responsibility, the sharing economy, and sustainable design. He's also the author of the new released Rethinking Corporate Sustainability in the Era of Climate Crisis, a Strategic Design Approach. And we're going to be actually be spending quite a bit of time on his new book, which I had the pleasure of finishing just a couple of days ago. So this is super fresh for me. And I want to welcome you to the show, Raz. This is the second time you're on the deep dive. So welcome back, I should say. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Philip. It's, it's great to be here again. And, you know, we're we're having this conversation at a particularly interesting time for those who are in New York or around the Northeast region. You know, we just had the remnants of Hurricane Ida that swept through um, the area last night. Well, yesterday into last night, but particularly last night, a lot of heavy storms, flooding, um, unfortunately, some loss of life. So far, the latest reports I saw, nine people died over the course of last night. And I think about three weeks ago, we had the latest IPCC report discussing the effects of climate crisis, where we stand right now, um, what needs to be done, which also was a, a very seminal moment in the climate crisis conversation. Couple that with wildfires at, again, another record year out in California. Turkey and Greece have also seen record fires. There's a lot going on, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. So long preamble to say that I think our conversation and particularly your work and contribution to this conversation is particularly important. And when I read the book, I was, I've always been impressed with your work, but I was particularly impressed with your focus on narrative, telling a, a different story, and really for a book that is not long, I found that it gave an incredible, an incredibly useful summation of how we've arrived here, which is, I think, just as important as where we need to go. So having really now said all that, I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, really explain what was your motivation for framing the book in the way that you did and then we can get into more detail about particular chapters and stories and all that good stuff. Sure. Thank you. So the, the book came out of many years of 
frustration that I had uh, and still have seeing the growing gap between the challenges that companies face and the response. And, and this, I think, became more urgent in in sense given the the you know the 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 growing importance and and the growing visibility of of the the climate crisis the climate crisis is certainly not the 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 only issue that companies face that companies need to respond to that companies have uh impacts related to there are certainly growing social concerns that are also very important but i think that it became evident to me, at least since the last IPCC report from 2018, that there is a growing urgency when it comes to the climate crisis, that the climate crisis, in a sense, is becoming a defining issue for uh, businesses. And at the same time, what I saw is a continuation of the same approach, the same incremental response, the same voluntary-based response that is is basically about here's what we can do, not about what we need to do. And what I wanted to, to do is to take years of looking at, exploring, researching these issues and, and trying to, to really to condense them into a book that will explore why companies need to to change their their way of thinking, their sustainability paradigm, and as if not more importantly, what needs to be done and and how do we make change happen? I think that that was also a piece that was important for me because I see many times we're doing a great job articulating the problem, but then we have, you know, it's much more difficult to, to explain, okay, what do we do about it? And that what that's what I, I try to do uh, in, in the second part of the book. As, as someone who's gone through it, I would, I, w- I would like to say that I think you did an excellent job of doing that because there's a lot of, you know, I jotted down in my notes, this clear delineation between the what versus the how. And, and how that is very much linked to the narrative power of how we tell stories, how we make sense of the, of the world. And so I want to spend some time on the beginning of the book, let's say the first half of the book, to make that line in the sand between the sustainability as usual paradigm that you discuss and the mental models that are in place as, as that is largely in service to shareholder capitalism, as you describe it. So, you know, let's start there with, with sort of why you see the sustainability as usual route as not meeting the moment. Right. So the thing is that what we've seen over the last couple of decades is that sustainability uh, efforts in, in business around sustainability have become the norm, right? We, if, if you, you look at the numbers, almost every, especially large company report on, on has a sustainability report and it became part of the, the discourse. It really became part of what 
business considers as you know the not the core necessarily but but certainly part of of doing business right this need to address environmental and and social impacts but at the same time what happens is that the 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 mental model what i i describe as the mental model this you know what you know peter sanger calls that the deeply held internal images of how the world works right this framing of shareholder capitalism which is basically about you know the the more traditional milton friedman type of understanding the way business works the way business should work and also the the centrality of markets and businesses in society and the the impact with the positive impact that they have so this mental model have has shaped the sustainability efforts in ways that basically made them more incremental that made the priorities very clear first and foremost it's about profit maximization then it's about sustainability and that approach while it created some movement while it created some progress it's just not enough because we're now in 2021 in a place where the question is not whether a business a company is doing something the question is whether a business a company is doing enough and that's a very different question and that's a question that sustainability as usual, sustainability that is limited by the mental model of shareholder capitalism is not capable of providing an educated response. It's just, it's not able to meet this bar. And it's it's like when I was reading, you just can't seem to get rid of Milton Friedman. It's like <laughs> this this guy surfaces himself in in the most nefarious of ways within conversations. And what I found that was really um, particularly well done was tying in the the work of someone like him and others, you know, because this is an entire school of thought at this point, and how much this is codified and has become more codified into our operating values and norms. So in in many ways, it sounds as if the shareholder capitalism mindset presupposes any other system. And anything you want to do as it pertains to sustainability is only up to the point in which it now interferes with the primary goal of, of shareholder capitalism. And so as we think about that narrative and how we adjust to that, like I want to give you an opportunity to now kind of dive into the connective tissue of how we start to develop other mental models that can then potentially offer a different how. Right. So, so, so I want first to 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 maybe to comment on on Friedman, and I think that I mean, you know, I I don't agree with you know many of his positions, but in a way, he was a genius and just in terms of being, you know, a prominent economist, but in terms, you know, of a storyteller, he managed to develop and popularize a story, right? A narrative that became the dominant story in business and the 
the, what he, I think, understood is the importance of telling, you know, a simple story that everyone can understand, that everyone can relate to, that everyone can feel that this makes sense. And, you know, when, when I think about how to develop alternative narratives, I, I, I certainly see the need to create narratives along these lines, right? And, and eventually that's part of the challenge. I think when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about a planetary context, it, it becomes, right, the story becomes more complicated. And, and part of the challenge is really how do we, how do we get back to, to basics? How do we tell a story that is compelling enough, but at the same time is also a story that, you know, people could relate to and, and could easily understand it. And, and Friedman did it uh, brilliantly. And, and I think, you know, part of the challenge is how do we, you know, to do it better. And, and that's what I'm exploring in this book. And so I would say that the need is really to take the, the, the structure, right, that was built by Friedman and other neoliberal thinkers and, and to try really to, to get to, to the bottom of it. And, and part of what I'm trying to do is really to take a more systematic approach, approach that is really, I mean, the, the book itself, right, I'm trying really to, to bring into it a strategic design approach, which to me is very much about looking into it from a systemic point of view that is very much, I'm talking about this notion of dark matter, which is really about looking at the broader picture, not just at what we see, but also at what we don't see, but nevertheless is is there and, and is powerful and helps shapes what we do see. So overall, what it means for me is really to, to think about how do we change the priorities, how we put sustainability first and everything else second. And that, in a sense, right, is what I'm, I'm looking at in, in terms of the what. I mean, I, I think that, you know, so some of the strategies and techniques and, and, and practices and so forth, right, this is more on strategic and, and even tactical levels. But overall, I think that first and foremost, right, we, we need to have uh, that conversation on, on a systemic level which eventually is really about understanding, right, the relationships that we have between companies and society, between companies and the planet, and, you know, have an understanding of what a more accurate articulation of these relationships will eventually evolve into. I want to take that point a little further, but before we do, because as you mentioned, like, the, the ideology of a Milton Friedman and, and distilling a story that has become so much the dominant story. Um, I would love your thoughts on this. It just kind of sparked the thought as you were, as you were speaking is, do you think that Friedman, and I'm, and I'm simplifying this for the sake of the question, that he was able to link his story to perhaps other dominant stories that have existed in what I'll call again, very simplistically sort of a, a Western capitalist story. I think about the popularization of the gospel of wealth that Robert Barons in the 1800s had, and that linked to sort of this survival of the 
fit is from a social perspective, right? That if you if you had money, this kind of very Protestant gospel of, of wealth ideology, the Andrew Car- Carnegie's of the world, that J.P. Morgan's, if you had the money, Rockefeller's, is because you earned it and it was your right to have it. And and this was a, a very popular conceit that kind of powered, I, I would say, American, particularly American capitalism for a long time. And making a connection between that narrative that we're already believers in the heroism of capitalism, and then Friedman can come along and sort of inject something even more into that. So I, I preface that to say, do you think that part of our narrative shift is to uncover or link to alternative stories that could be just as compelling as the ones we already have. I, I agree. I think that you know this issue is not just about how corporates behave, right? It's more existential question about right how we how we live, right? As a society, how we you know how do we build a functioning uh, society that is trying to think in in terms of you know of well being and really put humans first. And and I think I mean he definitely I mean he knew again I think part of genius element in in his work was, was that you know he managed also to to talk to that moment right where perhaps you know it, it's about building identity right who we are versus who the others are right and and the others right it's it's very much about if you talk about solidarity, if you talk about, you know, any sort of, of values that are more around, right, society and thinking more in communal terms, then you're, you're, you're a socialist or you're a communist, right? And these are the enemies, right? So if you want to, to identify yourself as, you know, the good guy, then this is, right, this is your manifesto. This is the way for you to think about, you know, about how to, to create value how to to ensure that progress in in society and and i think that's very much the again going to this point right it, it's it's a question of how do we right how do we change that uh understanding right and and the question eventually goes really to to values i agree i mean what do we stand for right what do we appreciate in terms of you know again the the, the life as uh, people on this planet, and and I think that the challenge is creating a story that again connects to our identity. I also think, in a sense, that it's also about you know uh, thinking who's the enemy because you know very much it's it's still you know I, I don't think that necessarily we can run from us versus them, and the question is who is them, and we can talk about it later. But I, I think overall this is very much about reclaiming an identity that perhaps was lost because of almost five decades of thinking about progress and about our future in terms of shareholder capitalism. You know, I think the us versus them, we're probably, we would have probably gotten to that later, but I'm going to (laughs) take the opportunity to get to it now, because as you were explaining your point, there's a, a mention in the book that I actually wrote down in full that I thought, and there's a portion where you're kind of talking about the different ways in which we can create a different narrative 
And one of the things you highlighted was that thinking about how do we make the forces working against transformational change weaker? And I, I really loved that point, not because I'm particularly looking for a fight, as someone who considers themselves largely a pacifist and not really looking to fight anybody, but in the sense of oftentimes when we are dealing with issues like sustainability and others, the conversation happens in this vacuum as if there hasn't been an opposing side that has tried to poison this entire conversation, right? Because I remember growing up in the 70s, you know, dating myself, where a lot of these issues seem to be solved and then not solved in terms of what we do, but we all kind of agreed for the most part. And then it seemed like somewhere in like the 2000s, we started to not agree on this stuff anymore, right? And it's like, it took an incredible amount of effort from, again, the other side, right? Those who have a vested interest in keeping things the same to basically sow discord where maybe there wasn't as much discord, right? And there's been all kind of, you know, statistics that, you know, in the 70s, 80% of the population, I'm making up numbers, I don't remember them before people call me on the specific numbers, but the numbers were higher on man-made climate change relative to now when you would make the logical point, well, there's more evidence, right? Like Ida just flooded New York City subways. That never happened in my entire lifetime as a New Yorker, right? So clearly something is is different. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk more about how that working against the, the forces, making those forces against transformational change weaker, like how that is part of the narrative story. Because again, oftentimes I find that that's missing. Yes. And, and this is, I think, an, an important point because I think in thinking about my theory of change, but any theory of change and, and especially one that is based on, on narratives, I think that it's important to, to recognize that whether you like it or not, right, you're always in what I call a narrative war, right? There, there, there's always a war between different opposing narratives. For so many years, right, we, we've seen, you know, just, you know, again, one opponent, one side that, you know, is, is very skillful with the narratives and is doing whatever it needs to make sure that they remain dominant, that they remain the, the winning uh, narratives and, and that they shape basically the, the world as, as we know it. And what we see as you look also at, you know, the, the history of social movements, right? For, for me, it goes back to this notion from Kurt Levin, the, the, uh, the psychologist, right? And he's talking about this framework and this notion that you always have this equilibrium that, that if you want to, when, when it comes to behavior, that if you want to change it, right, it could be about uh, driving forces of change, right? And it could also be about restraining the, the forces that are trying to uh, resist change. And what he says is basically is that within these two, fighting the forces that resist change is, is much more important because these forces, right, are, are critical or, or weakening them is, is critical to, to make change happen because you can drive, you know, you can drive forces of change as much as you want, but if you don't 
look into and, and consider the, the other part, the opposing part, right, that then they will also, you know, work harder and try to, to make, you know, a greater efforts to resist. And that eventually will make your, your efforts less effective. And, and I think one, maybe one example, right, not from the, the sustainability world, right, is thinking about gun laws and the NRA, right, and, and thinking about, I mean, so many efforts, so much, you know, money and time and sweat was, right, was invested in so many efforts and eventually many, if not the, the majority of them, right, fell because of the, the NRA. So I think that, and, and perhaps probably, right, and maybe we will see some initial signs of it today, right, the way to a real change goes first and foremost through weakening the NRA. Same here, I think, is with fossil fuel companies. They have been a very powerful force trying to convince us for years, for example, that what we need to consider is our own carbon footprint rather than thinking about, you know, about it from a more systemic point of view and what the role is. And they did a great job because they're still, you know, that they managed to stay in power again in, in terms of their, their impact and their business for so many years. And, 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 and I think one part is, again, of this fight is understanding the need really to, to weaken them, right? In order to weaken the power of the narrative that they've developed. And, and so I think the, the bottom line is eventually at the end of the day, you know, I think we're, you know, every day, every minute in this narrative war. And, and the, the sooner we recognize it, I mean, the, the better, because then we could, you know, start thinking how to be better narrative warriors. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I'm, I'm writing down more notes as you're as you're going, because you're everything you say takes me into another direction, which is awesome. But as I'm hearing you describe that narrative of, let's say, fossil fuel companies and carbon footprint, it almost sounds to me like, again, there's there's many narratives. Right. But there's this overarching narrative of the individual versus the systemic. So I was curious because as I'm listening to you talk, I almost feel like standard sustainability, what you would call sustainability as usual, almost gives like a toolkit to the other side in a in a way, right? And, and again, I'm probably simplifying it, but I think about how, again, growing up, so many efforts turn to, you know, cleaning up litter or not littering. And then that moved to like recyclables. Like when I got to college, it was all about like, oh, the dorm needs to be recyclable and we're going to build all these, like we're going to separate our plastic and separate our this and separate our that. And all of those things could and should be good, but they still are now making the conversation about like my choices as an individual. And I feel like the fossil fuel companies and others have weaponized a lot of that same language into like carbon, right? So now it's your choice to get an electric car or it's your choice to not travel as much or it's your choice not to do this as opposed to their choice to like leave oil in the ocean, right? (laughs) Or like, or or whatever the thing might happen to be. So I'm, I'm curious about how you think about that big 
individual narrative versus a systemic narrative. Right. And and they want to emphasize that it's not just the fossil fuel companies. If you take a company like Coca-Cola, right, they want, right, they're fighting to make sure that the conversation will be about recycling, right? How do we make sure that we increase recycling? How do we uh, improve the, the recycling infrastructure? How do we use more recycled plastic and so forth? And again, it's all good, but, you know, it's just not the right conversation that we that we need to have. In, in strategic design, we always talk about asking better questions. And so the question is not how do we, should not be how we, you know, how might we recycle better? It should be why do we need or should we have a system that is built on uh, disposable single-use plastic bottles in the first place, right? And and that's a question that Coca-Cola is not interested in because they're, you know, they're producing and selling more than 100 billion with B bottles of soda drinks every every year. So that this is what their business model is based on. So in a sense, when you're asking a more difficult question, but perhaps the question we need to ask, then it challenges their core business and that's a problem for them because their business is still very profitable. So what they prefer is that we'll be more focusing on the periphery rather than the core, very comfortable for them. Also, you know, it could be, you know, work for, for us unless we, we start digging into, again, the, the more difficult systematic questions that in a sense, going back to the climate crisis the climate crisis forces us to to ask these questions because the the climate crisis is this force that doesn't really you know doesn't really get stories it it get action it get processes chemical physical biological processes and and that is again a force that that requires us to get into these difficult questions and and we have to, to, to do it in an environment where many companies are still profiting from, you know, these, these models that are basically built on uh, and, and require them not to ask these, these difficult questions. And, and this is the challenge here. And, you know, even the language that we use as we have this conversation, because you spend quite a bit of time distilling the notion of transformation and what it means when we talk about transformation, what type of transformation we're actually driving toward. And I want to get us to your to your thesis and now the second half of the book, which is talking about awakened sustainability. But before we go there, I do want to give you an opportunity to to kind of define transformation because you make, I think, really strong delineations between physical, qualitative, you know, how we're thinking about unlocking our potential as a as a species, human potential. And and all of that goes beyond the typical business book, business school talk about transformation. So I want to give you a chance to set the stage with that. And then I want to get into this this more important well, another piece about awakened sustainability is a contrast to sustainability as usual. So transformation first. Right. So I think, I mean, in, in terms of, of transformation, right, when, when we think about 
transformation and, and one of the definitions that I use comes from the, the IPCC uh, 2012 report that talks about the, the altering of fundamental attributes of a system. And I think that to me is a good way to, to think about it, right? Because it's really about a more fundamental and meaningful change in a system. We can change system in different ways, some of them more incremental, some of them more significant. But I think that when we talk about transformation, we, we talk really about, you know, a change that that is meaningful, that is really is changing the system at its core, rather than again thinking about fixing a little bit here and a little bit there. So so that you know I, I think a distinction that is needed because it's it's important to, to think about the level of change that right not just about okay we need to make some sort of change but also the level of change that is required and, and I think that the word using the word transformation is, is really about you know having you know just setting in place the, the assumption that we're talking about more fundamental level of change. And I lied because I said we were going to get to sustainability, <laughs> awaken sustainability, but I want to throw in reporting real quick. Sure. Only because the reporting ties to and or limits this notion of transformation in a way. And I, and I had that note in here because I thought it was pretty important about how we capture true cost and also this idea of mechanical versus biological. Because um, you do mention surfacing ecology, introducing degrowth, the limitations of the circular economy. So there's a, a lot in that, but it seemed like a lot of that stemmed from reporting, which again, the reporting is still within the mental model of the shareholder capitalism. Right. So in, in the book, I try to, I say, okay, I talk about sustainability as usual as this concept, but let's see how it actually works in practice. And to do that, I dedicate one chapter to reporting and one chapter to the circular economy, because both of them are very central elements of sustainability in business. And reporting gets a lot of attention because most companies, as I mentioned earlier, they do some sort of sustainability reporting. Companies uh, make a lot of effort around reporting. There is a lot of effort to improve reporting, but what basically we see is that reporting doesn't really work. The, the idea is that, I mean, the, there's this thesis that basically, you know, the more companies and the better companies will report, then eventually it will lead to also to improved impacts because it will create more transparency. It will enable investors to see which companies do better and, and invest more in these companies. And that will, you know, just will, will create this loop where, you know, more reporting will lead to more impact that will lead to more reporting and, and so forth. If, if you look at, you know, different studies, you find that this theory of change doesn't really work and, and that reporting is not really leading to better impacts or to better sustainability performance you know, it's just maybe leads to, to better reporting. <laughs> so in a sense, right, the question is, so what's the problem, right? So we could get, again, to, to the, look at the surface and say, okay, maybe we need to, you know, 
uh, look at better, you know, accounting principles, better frameworks, uh, more, you know, just doing more work, bringing different stakeholders and so forth. But when you dig deeper, right, to, to the more systemic level, again, what I'm trying to, to show is that part of the problem, right, is that these reports are are not really contextualized properly, right? They're, they're Again, they're telling you stories about what companies doing, but uh, they're not telling you these stories in, in a proper context that will allow you to understand if they're doing enough. I've been reading reports for more than a decade and I can still, I can't take two reports and compare them. It's impossible. And that that's part of it. They're, you know, they're long, they're many times, they're complicated. They tell different stories, but they, they lack that context, uh, you know, asking about, you know, Okay, are you doing what you need to do? We understand that you do, but what you do in a certain in, in a specific context based on planetary boundaries and thinking about boundaries related to social elements, right? Then you know if if you apply them, they may tell you a very different story. But this is not the story that you learn about. And and the same goes also for the circular economy. I think that again, something everyone is excited at, but. If and when we approach it through the lenses of uh, sustainability as usual, I think it, it, it allows us only to, to operate in a very limited capacity. And understanding that requires us really to, to, to get to that bottom, right? To, to get to that level of mental models. Because otherwise, I think we're, we're still just, you know, running without seeing exactly where, where we should be looking at. Perfect. Now awaken sustainability, right? So now we're... The case has been made, future-facing, and it ties very much to these powerful narratives that you offer that could start to tell a different sustainability story. So with that as the lead-in, where do you see as the critical distinctions in the narrative between sustainability as usual and awakened sustainability model? I think, I mean, for me, the, the, the second part of the book it's more difficult, but also perhaps as if not more more exciting because I think the challenge is always about, okay, we're not doing things right, but how can we do them better? And But together, you know, I needed a better, a clear understanding of the problem, which is why I, I spent the, the first half of the book on articulating the problem. And then once the, the problem is articulated, I, I went and started thinking about, okay, what would be a different approach? And and one thing that I'm looking at, right, is <laughs> I base it on what I call the, the opposite principle, right? This idea that I took from Seinfeld, this conversation between George and Jerry, when George is telling Jerry that everything doesn't work for him in life and, and what should he do? And, and Jerry telling him that, you know, if every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. And that leads to... to a, a very funny episode, but it's also it's also true. I think that in, in a sense, right, every instinct that we have, right, with sustainability as usual, is wrong. Then the opposite would probably be right, which for me means that first and foremost is changing the prioritization. If in sustainability uh, as usual, profits come first and sustainability considerations come second. We need to change it. We need to change and put sustainability first and the rest comes second, which is why 
I define uh, a new mental model that, that I call sustainability first now. But beyond that, right, maybe I'll, I'll take one step backwards, right? The question is also, where is it that we want to go, right? Understanding, I okay, we want to choose a different direction, but we also want a destination, right? And that led me really to think about using backcasting, the idea that we need to lead from the future, that we need first and foremost to think about what's a desired future look like, right? What's our our vision for a desired future? Because if we don't understand what, you know, if we don't articulate that, then it's really difficult to know where to to go to, what to aim for. And and so for me, it was, okay, and the understanding that I need to frame this new thinking about the opposite, right, to, to sustainability as usual, also in broader terms of a vision, a desired vision, which led me really to, to look into different frameworks and eventually choosing a framework that is based on principles, right, and, and understanding that or creating a structure that is built on principles which are basically science-based sustainability principles that provide you the understanding, again, what are the boundaries both of the the planet and society that you need to, to consider as you do whatever you do. Contextualize, which means for me, prioritize with social justice and regenerative design and grounded in this new mental model of sustainability, sustainability first now. So basically these are, you can think of it as, as a recipe, right? Uh, and, and these are the ingredients and it's not necessarily, you know, just for one dish, but for many dishes, right? And and each company could choose you know, what dish it wants to create, right? But these are new ingredients for basically a new kitchen, if you like. And we desperately need this new kitchen. When you talk about what do we want, and I know we're we're thinking about the connectivity of these planetary systems and, and how the world, our world ecologically links together. But when I think about that question, and I'd be curious as to how you think about the way I'm I'm putting it together. And this literally just came to my mind. So it's not going to be that lucid a, a thought, but bear with but bear with me. When when you said like what do we want and we're kind of projecting into this future and the backcasting, do you think one of the challenges is that our wants in different parts of the world are so vastly different depending on the challenges we face. Why this came to my mind is that when they had these floods in Germany, and I think that was in June, maybe something like that. I think it was this summer, definitely. And they had these like catastrophic floods through um, Belgium and Germany, but I think Germany got most of the press because they got a a lot of footage of mud water sweeping a town away and all this kind of stuff. There was a a woman that kind of went mini viral. I'm not sure how many people saw the, the the comment, but she was like, "Oh, this is something I thought only happened in places where dark people lived, or something like that." It was poor people. It was some reference that instantly let you know that she was thinking that the situation that happened in their town in Germany was something she only attributed to happening in, let's just say, the global south. Right. Right. So if it, if she turned on her news 
and saw that this was happening in India or in Africa or someplace else, she would have been like, oh, that tracks, right? Like, But it happening there beyond the personal effect of it was culturally devastating because it sounded to me like she was like, ah, I never thought this could happen here, right? Do you think that sort of divide, so I'm only using this this woman as a proxy, is part of the challenge of picturing what we want because you spend a lot of time in the book weaving together the ideas of of social justice and equity and and how those things are all connected and i feel that sustainability is only catching up to those conversations you know getting better but still not where they should be and others like you like you and, and many others are weaving that in quite intrinsically so i'm i'm curious as to how I presented it imperfectly, what you think about how do we get to a somewhat commonality of what do we want? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think to me, it's definitely this notion again of maybe two points. One is is clarity and one also about, you know, us versus them. And I connect them in a way that it's really about thinking, right, that when we think about the issues, when we think about the problems, right, it's not everyone that is responsible, right? There's not equal, responsible in an equal way, right? Some people are more responsible and some people have less responsibility. And I think it's important to recognize it and, and to recognize those that have the main responsibility and those that have the sheer responsibility for the impacts that are created for the system that has developed and so forth, and are also the beneficiaries of this system. And I would say that when, you know, I I don't mention it too much, but when I talk about the transformation, I think that part of the way that connected eventually to, to thinking about, you know, how do we bring together different narratives under one tent that could eventually serve the, the greater goal, I think in terms of, you know, populism, right? And how do you bring populists from the left and from the right who can, who will eventually will be able to see, right, who are those that are responsible, right? And understand that there's, you know, a very uh, small percentage of the population worldwide, right, that doesn't really want us to understand that, you know, they have, you know, this responsibility and they want us to think that we're all responsible. And I think once there's a greater recognition of that, there's also a greater ability to make what they're doing to to to, to reframe it as unacceptable. And, and I think hopefully that will enable also greater collaboration of the global South and the global North. But it certainly requires an acknowledgement of the global North, right? That we're in a very different position that we are, you know, in, in also very privileged to, you know, to, to be able to, to fight it perhaps with, you know, with means that people in the, the global South don't have and and accept right and accept also the, the the responsibility and hopefully the agency that we have right to make a difference. 
That's a really great way to frame it. You know, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I want to get us to the final two segments of the show. Um, before I, I do that, I do want to ask one other question before we get to off the dome and the drop, because it ties to the sustainability first now point that is so central to this, this new vision and this new narrative and ask you about all birds, which again, very timely in the news as of us recording this and my own, not skepticism, not the right word, but my own sort of just keeping an eye on the situation is not something I'm deeply engaged in. I'm curious if you see their recent IPO announcement as heading toward the narrative that you laid out, which is sustainability first now. And and then we'll get to the final two segments of the show. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I, I read their, you know, the documents that they sent to, they filed to the, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it's a fascinating document, I would say, in terms of bringing together different pieces about, you know, their sustainability commitment and trying to brand, you know, the process, a sustainable IPO and themselves as a sustainable public company. And I would say that while, I mean, it's, easy to dismiss all of it as sort of, you know, PR, PR effort and nothing but PR. I would say that it's interesting, again, to think about what they do in terms of expanding the, the discourse of business to, to really to, I mean, this was the, the, the first time that I saw a company that is talking in its IPO uh, feeling about mentioning climate in terms of climate crisis. And I didn't see before a company that part of its mission is to reverse climate change, right? And so in a sense, right, perhaps they're still, I think it's still grounded in sustainability as usual, because in a way, right, becoming a public company, right, puts you in within certain limitations that, you know, whether you, you like it or not, it moves you to a certain direction. Nevertheless, I mean, some of Bright are incorporated as, as a benefit corporation and, and they're also, I mean, the fact that they put it out there, I think, and, and, and make it part of the conversation, make them, whether they want it or not, part of this narrative war, right? It, it brings, and, and so I, I would say this, this is interesting I'm looking forward to see other companies that move to to the next step and 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 think about it not just in terms of you know more progressive sustainability as usual but actually trying to move beyond it to try to think not just how to show that sustainability and you know that there is no tension between sustainability and profits but are very clear and brave to say that yes sustainability can come first these are the narrative warriors right that you talk about that it's each one plays a different part in that. Some are going to address social norms. Some are going to address legal structures. Some are going to push, you know, they're going to fight against those who are seeking to weaken um, our arguments, you know, or we're going to seek to weaken theirs, which is why I wanted to bring it up um, because I felt like they seem to be moving in a, in a way that fits within the paradigm of narrative warriors. You know, and now we have to wait and see, <laughs> you know, because personally, one of the things I, I, I wrote about this last year is guarding against cynicism. I always feel like cynicism is in service to the powerful. And so we have we can critique, but we got to give 
people an opportunity if we can. So my own personal kind of editorial there. The the book is great. I, I highly recommend it, not just because we've had this conversation, but I think it is a valuable blueprint on what we need to do going forward, but gave a very also useful synopsis of why we're where we are. So can't recommend it enough. I want to get us to Off the Dome, which are just, um, before we get to the drop, which are just simple three, in my in your case, three simple questions, you know, that's what the dogs in the backyard start to, to fight. Not our dogs, however, I must say, because we don't have any, but we're in Brooklyn. There's always noise. Um, nonetheless, um, three quick Off the Dome questions, just light, first thing that comes to mind. So you ready? Go ahead. All right. First one, are you a night owl or an early bird? Ah, uh, that, that's easy. I, I'm an early bird. In terms of if you had to form a climate crisis, climate action dream team, your own sort of climate crisis Avengers, so to speak, what are the you know two or three names that you would you would have on that list to go into battle against those who are trying to push back against a better narrative? So I would um, <laughs> I would actually look for some of my students. I think I mean that I would like uh, my students are you know coming from all over the world, and they're passionate, they're young, and they're not afraid to challenge the status quo and ask difficult questions. And these are exactly the people that I would like to 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 see that, you know, are running the show when it comes to, uh, you know, to seeking for climate solutions. That's awesome. I'm, I'm sure those students are, are in good hands and are ready to, ready to go into battle with you. And my final off the dome is if you can have an unlimited supply, climate crisis, um, safe... <laughs> So it's just a theoretical. If you can have an unlimited supply of one thing for the rest of your life, what would that one thing be? Ooh, that, that, that's a difficult question. Does it have to be something material? Anything. Anything at all. That's a good question. I would say uh, love. I think we, we need, you know, the we, we certainly need more, you know, more uh, supply of that to, to overcome challenges. And, and if we have uh, with more love, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's maybe it's not, you know, the, the business discourse, but I think it's uh, this is helpful to, you know, to overcome uh, every challenge. Absolutely. You know, love is is very much a, a central part of what I put out there. And, um, you know, Stevie Wonder said far more eloquent than, than me, love's in need of love today. So that's an awesome thing to have an endless supply of. So thank you for, for those. And so now we're at the drop. And the drop, as always, is just an interesting thing that our listeners should be aware of. It could be anything at all. I came in with the drop. Um, I'm assuming you have one, too. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? No, no, you, you can go first. Okay. My my drop is a book um, called Blonde Roots um, by Bernadine Evaristo. It's the second book I, I've read by her. And it's different from the first one. The first one was um, Woman, Girl. I always get it wrong. But um, she won like the Booker Prize for it a couple of years ago. Girl, Woman, Girl, Other, I think is the name of it. I could be wrong there, but... Either way, I've mentioned it on the show before, and it's a fantastic book. And so I wanted to read more things from her. And so I got a couple of, of books from her, and Blonde Roots was the first new one that I've read. And um, it's one of her earlier works, 
but I was just blown away by it because it's so different from the previous book I read that set me on this journey. And, and so I was like, just wondering to myself, like, how could one person come up with such two completely different narratives? But um, I'm not going to give anything else, uh, anything about the book away, but it was um, really fascinating, really makes you think, puts you in a different place. And so Blonde Roots is my drop. Great. Th- th- thank you for the recommendation. So my drop is Sapiens, a graphic history uh, by Yuval uh, Noah Harari. And, and I mean, everyone probably is familiar with uh, Yuval Noah Harari's uh, Sapiens, but this version that I'm looking at is basically taking the, the, the book and transforming it into a graphic novel in, in a way, uh, almost a comics book. And I have to say that I read this book with my kids. And what I love about it, right, is uh, we're doing the the first volume. What's interesting is that we talked about stories. This is such a great way to take a more academic story uh, by its nature and and transform it into a story that, you know, that is more accessible and, and that, you know, my kids and kids in general could could read and enjoy and learn from and i think it's it's a great example to really to consider how do we tell stories in in ways that could you know could uh just uh help them become more accessible and hopefully more effective so one thing that i hope as i'm reading this book that one way i will be able to take my book and to create uh a, a you know the the a graphic novel version of it that hopefully will be as successful as this one. Yeah, that's the, that's an awesome way to think about it. The medium, the medium does matter. And if we can take these works and transform them in other places, particularly when we're seeing that memes and mimetic wars are happening all around the internet, that's a great way to think about it. That's an, off, that's an awesome, awesome drop. I got to um, check that out myself as someone who's a comic book and graphic novel enthusiast. So with that, Raz, it's it's great having you on the show. I'm I'm glad that you were able to make this second appearance and share your new book. The you know, the minute I saw you post about it, I knew I had to have you back on to discuss and didn't let me down. This has been great and um highly recommended. It. Again, it's called Rethinking Corporate Sustainability in the Era of Climate Crisis, a strategic design approach. And Raz, thanks for being on the deep dive. Thank you so much, Philip. I enjoyed the conversation. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.